Recorded live. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's Telerade podcast on TalkShoe.com. Today, I have a special guest for an interview. Uh, author Diane Duane is uh, phoning in from her home in Ireland. Uh, D- Diane Duane has written many, many books over the last uh, little time period, including the Young Wizard series, Middle Kingdom books, a whole lot of Star Trek and other tie-ins. Uh, an XCOM novel tie-in, which is one of my favorites, and uh, and so on. And I am ab- absolutely delighted she could join us today. Uh, I interviewed her last a uh, few years ago on my old talk show podcast, The Bibliophile, and uh, I have quite a few more questions to ask today. <laughs> no problems. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. And thank you for coming to the show. It's always great to talk to you. It's since uh, many of our Telerid uh, listeners are interested in the ebook business side of things, I'd like to start with some questions about your ebook store, and then we'll move sure. to questions about your titles after that. Uh, the business aspect of that store has been interesting me more the long, more and more the longer that you run it. As far as I know, you're one of only a handful of writers to run their own ebook store as an e-commerce site rather than self-publishing through Amazon, Smashwords, etc. I know C.J. Cherry and some of her friends do a one of their do an ebook store of their own and so forth. But okay. uh, at any rate, what uh, what gave you the idea to set up your own ebook store? I seem to recall it had something to do with territorial issues over the Young Wizards ebooks. Is that right? That was part of what started it. Um, when ebooks began gradually to take off, um, I spoke to my publisher, uh, then Houghton Mifflin, and now they're Harcourt Houghton Mifflin or Houghton Mifflin. I get it backwards all the time. HMH, let's just call them that. And uh, I said to them, you know, what are, what are your plans for doing international versions of the ebooks? And they said, well, we don't really have any. And I went, well, that's interesting. I, I went off and had a chat with my agent. And I said, Don, we, we do hold the rights to these, don't we? And, and he said, yeah. And I said, all right, well, this, this really seems like the optimum time to start investigating handling these ourselves. And so I did. You still with us? Uh, yes, Hello. I am. Oh, yeah. no, I'm I am sorry. sorry. It, was so, it was so quiet at the other end. I, I lost you there for a moment. I just muted my mic so I could do some typing in the chat window. Oh, okay. But, no problem. But uh, so you basically you were, I remember in the uh, blog post you wrote that you uh, you were going to do some international edition ebooks, but uh, at the time Amazon was not able to restrict their sale only to places where you didn't already have the uh, ebook rights sold. Exactly. So now they are, which is handy and makes makes that aspect of things simpler. Um, the problem that I've run into with Amazon as regards the international editions is that every now and then they'll pull one of them out of uh, their catalog because their friendly bot that runs around in the great world looking for uh, price checks and so forth has stumbled across somebody who has pirated one of my international editions, and they've decided then that there must be a copyright infringement of some kind, and so they take the book off my store. And it takes 
a fair amount of, of going back and forth with various staff people at Amazon to get something like that replaced. And, and it, it's really a big nuisance. I'm trying, you know, I, I've been trying on and off for the last couple of years to find some way to, you know, have some kind of note put in my account at Amazon saying, look, th- this writer's work gets pirated her own stuff that she's publishing with us is the real deal. Um, And, you know, I look forward to resolving that problem before the decade is out. Uh, In the meantime, it's just simpler for me to handle them myself at the uh, the e-books direct end because I know perfectly well where where those books have come from. Uh Uh-huh. One of the... uh caller chatters, Gary LaPointe uh, asks, what made them international versions? So I guess a little clarification there would be helpful. Uh, the the major reason that they're international is because they're not being offered in the States. <laughs> that That's the size of it. Um, there is no difference textually between those and the versions that uh, HMH are offering inside the States. It's just as usual when you contract with a publisher, they nail down what territories they're going to control, and everything outside of those territories is, is simply considered international. Right. Uh, yeah. So when you were setting up your ebook store, did you run into any challenges early on? Um, all the time, <laughs> constantly. I, I started out running it under Zencart, and while Zencart is very useful software, the learning curve on that is insanely steep, um, and you only have time for so many learning curves in a life, um, and in particular when you're also you know, theoretically setting aside you know, ideally eight hours a day or so to write, that being your job, um, having to deal with a lot of other tech issues at the same time can can really sort of cut in on your writing time. Um, Zencart was a bit more than I enjoyed handling. Uh, it required a lot of babysitting, a lot of hand-holding. And this coming from a person who routinely works with Drupal and and so is fairly tech savvy and fairly resistant to you know the oh my gods that that you know any any work with open source platform material in particular is likely to to drop on your head um when i realized that there really is only so much time and uh that too much of my day was was getting spun off to managing not even sales in the store, but just figuring out how to make the store work the way I wanted to. I said, fine, it's it's time to go looking for a different platform. And at that point, I was uh, sort of Twitter buddies with uh, a gentleman best known as um, uh, the accordion guy, Joey Davila, who was at that point working with Shopify. And it would have been a little bit after he left Shopify that I made the the choice on partly on advice from him and and just his suggestion that it was one of the better platforms around that I might want to move my business over there. So I did. And by and large, um I've been really pleased with the way they have freed me not to have to think about most shop stuff. Now, as you know, because we were just chatting about this about 10 minutes ago, 20 minutes ago, um occasionally uh, some of the apps associated with Shopify act up 
a little bit and, and need a little whip and chair work to, to get them into line. Um, but by and large, the platform works beautifully. And, and so when I, when I found that, I was very glad to settle into it and just let them handle the, uh, the nuts and bolts of dealing with the shop. The, uh, I think I've been with them. It, it's pushing five years now. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are, the, what are the best and worst uh, aspects of running your own ebook store? Uh, control and control. Um, <laughs> I mean, and and you know, you you have to always be aware that people who come to you to buy this stuff, you know, they they have not taken the easy way out and gone out, you know, to Amazon or BNN. And so, when the little noise associated with the um, eBooks Direct help email goes off. Uh, on the iPad, I just kind of dive for it pretty much any time, day or night, because um, you know customer service at this level really matters. Um, and you know, you, again, knowing that uh, you can operate your store from anywhere. I mean, it was it, we were in Germany for a friend's wedding. Uh, in June, we were in Austria for a brief sort of fact-finding mission on, on some things in, in July. And knowing that if you've got decent broadband, you can continue handling your business from anywhere you are, that's, that's a tremendous uh, tool. That, that, that's just a great thing to know that you can do. Um, uh-huh. There, there are so so few businesses where you know you, when, where you're not actually chained to, to bricks and mortar, but like the work of writing, you can take it anywhere you go. That, that that's really super. Yeah, that's uh, that is pretty neat. You know, it's one of the aspects of the whole mobile revolution that we don't really think about. You know, we think about how you can you can read anywhere, but you we here we find that you can do exactly the opposite too. You can you can uh, uh, support other people buying from you to read anywhere, anywhere also. Absolutely. It, it, it's really super. Now, of course, the, the corollary of this, when you flip it, means that you can never escape from your work. But frankly, as a writer, you're used to that anyway. And, and a lot of people who perceive career writing as this wonderful kind of freedom um, have not really looked into this particular aspect of it closely enough that when you do this for your living, there is no hour of the day or night and not even in your dreams when you are entirely free of the work you're doing, that this kind of thing, it, it, I, I wouldn't say it devours you, but it will demand your attention at any moment without warning. Everything you look at is potentially a story idea. I can't pick up a newspaper or look at a news broadcast, you know, I, usually without having an idea for a novel within about 10 minutes. <laughs> it, it's <laughs> And, the and muse the problem, doesn't of course, keep office hours. The muse does not. The muse is there all day, and and you know you are in service. This is a service occupation, and it's it's bloody inescapable. You can't get away. Anything you see may trigger something. Now, now the point is also it has to be said that story ideas are a dime a dozen, and the people who ask you where do you get your ideas, it's like I get mine, the same as you get yours. You know, from out of that space that exists to be filled by the thing you were about to say, and, or, you know, or else this, off the this, shelf at Kmart. 
or off the shelf at Kmart, or some of us, you know, I, have, I, I like to say I have a, you know, post office address in Schenectady that, you know, they send me, they send me a package of, you know, 20 hot ideas every month. If I only had 20 ideas a month, that would actually be some relaxing. <laughs> you know, the, the thing is, of course, as I say, anybody can have ideas, and the truth is that whether you're a career writer or not, 90% of those ideas will be useless or intractable. So you learn very quickly. It's a process I've occasionally referred to as weighing something in the hand of the mind. You hold that story idea and you feel it and you think, okay, what could this be? Is there enough meat on this thing's bones to actually turn it into a short story, a novella, a novel, a screenplay, a miniseries, a feature? Um, and then, uh-huh. then you start development from that point. Uh-huh. And if it won't handle it, you throw it away. You say, the hell with it, something else will come along in five minutes, and it does. Uh, getting back to the ebook store questions, mm. I've, I've noticed that a lot of independent ebook stores seem to have a problem with exposure. It seems as if an, if an ebook isn't on Amazon, many Kindle owners simply don't seem to know it exists or how to purchase it. For instance, uh, Bain, who sold books DRM-free in multiple formats for over 10 years, ended up having to rework the way its own ebook store worked in order to get its books on Amazon because people kept yeah. complaining that they weren't on Kindle. Have you yeah. had any sort of that any of that sort of problem? People upset they couldn't find some of your titles like Young Wizards New Millennium Edition on Amazon? Not really. Um, I'm more that you know the the way I've got things structured right now is is niche, and that's okay. Um, it it you know right now uh, for the way I'm managing the store and the way I have time to manage the store, that's that's all right. When people need help with side loading, with with you know getting material into their Kindle or into their Nook, um, you know I'm happy to help them. And that's that's been the, the the thing I've been getting most requests about, and I'm going to add a link to the store about that. And, and I think increasingly, I'm considering adding to each package of eBooks that goes out uh, a simple text file saying, "Have you got a Kindle or Nook? Let us help you." And then just you know, including the instructions for how to how to sideload, because a lot of people have become so habituated to the effortless ease with which Amazon stuffs something into your Kindle that they've never thought beyond you know just the simple push of you know the push of the one click buy button. They've they've never had to deal with anything more complex than that. Uh huh. Uh, Bain had on their uh, on their site they had a thing where you could fill in your Kindle's email address and click a button and it would send the ebook directly to the Kindle, but they yeah, had to yeah. put limitations on that now because Amazon objected or something. I wouldn't be surprised. The other thing is it's partly a security issue, I would guess, um, that there would be some concerns about what people are doing with. A Kindle's email address once once it's been passed on. Um, I wouldn't hand mine to somebody I didn't trust implicitly, and I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, there were some Kindle users who who got twitchy about it after the fact. And you know, uh-huh. to, each, to each their own. To each their own. I, I would understand it completely. Um, if people have trouble side loading, um, I, I I'm happy to offer, and I have done before. If they'll just whitelist my email address or the ebooks um, uh, direct uh, help address, we'll just mail them. Well, well, I'm happy to mail a file directly to their Kindle, and you know it, it's cool. It's uh, I might get a request like that maybe a couple times a month, 
couple few times. No, not it's not overwhelming. Uh-huh. Uh have you have uh obviously if if this is a question you can't answer completely you can, mm-hmm. but have you had any trouble getting the rights to sell any of your backlist titles on your own ebook store? Yeah. Yeah, it's not unusual. There are times when um some companies simply don't want um your book to be officially out of print with them and so they will you hesitate to say sneakily, but they will go to POD on one of your titles and that that they've decided they want to keep, and then suddenly your book is not out of print anymore, and then you can't revert it. And until you revert the rights to yourself, you can't do the e-books. Yeah, that's, um, that's been one of, the, one of the big uh, problems and worries about e-books ever since e-books began, the whole out-of-print issue, and of course POD is e-books country cousin. Yeah, exactly. So it's you know it's it's happened. Uh, fortunately, not frequently, but but there it is. Um, in other cases where the book is still clearly in print and the ebook rights are being held and exploited by another publisher, it's, it's fine. I, I can't do anything about that. That's just the way that goes. Um, international editions, another story. But again, putting those international editions together takes time, and every hour I spend, you know, putting together ebook editions is an uh-huh. hour that I don't have that I should have been writing. Yeah, so, uh, getting back to the Young Wizards International editions, uh, you mm-hmm. still on, you only sell those to people in territories where the Harcourt editions are unavailable. Is that right? That's right. Well, at least you don't have to worry about things like the next Jew chapters or Eros con Polio anymore. No, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a bit of a run-in with them over, over that. Um, the, the difficulty has been that older editions of books, you know, like, like from the time period when the first five books approximately were published, or the first four, um, instead of coding those clean, um, the publisher actually passed them to a third-party scanning company, which then rendered digital text from them and handed it back to Harcourt as ready to publish. And so, yeah, Aros con Polio and other other delights, um, they were not very clean. I asked the publisher, please, to pass me back um, ebook copies from you know that they were presently punish, uh, punishing. <laughs> yes, they were punishing. Them. <laughs> they were publishing at that point and uh, let me correct them. And I did that for the first four. And I think after that, the excuse me, there was a fly trying to dive into my tea there. Um, they they were clean enough after that that the publisher decided they didn't need to do it, do that any further. So that was that was just mm-hmm. fun. You ended up having to go to uh, pirate editions for some e-books, for some of your books, didn't you? It was simpler. <laughs> it was simpler. They borrowed them from me, I borrowed them back, we're all fine. What can you say, frankly? Um, from, you know, it, was, it was just the simplest way to do it. Um, there was no way I had time that... Hang on there. Tractor with big hay bales on the back. Um, there's no way. Yeah, listen, we are in the depths, the very depths of rural Ireland here, mm-hmm. and it's we've had a, dry, a couple of dry days, and so everyone's mm-hmm. getting the hay in. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's really an issue. But anyway, um, yeah, I figured, what the hell? If the, if these people feel it's okay to hem borrow my books from me, um, then I'm sure it's a hem okay if I borrow them right back and you know go through correct the text. I don't have time to re-enter an entire novel by hand mm-hmm. or scan it and then you know go through the correction. These people have been kind enough to do nine tenths of the work for me. That's very sweet of them. I'll just have to send that back. Thank you. It kind of makes you wonder, you know, uh, the publisher digitization. Publishers supposedly exist to create create proofread and corrected editions of books for publication, and they do that <laughs> in print, but then they they would just blithely scan them and then just put whatever came out on the shelf without a second look. It's it's true. Unfortunately, the other thing that goes on at publishers, and it's gone on at mine, God knows, is that big publishing houses have been bought by bigger publishing houses, which then insist on melding them together with other already existent publishing houses and throwing out the redundant personnel. I use the word redundant so advisedly. And as a result, just for example, at my own publisher at Harcourt, um, here you have what was once, you know, one of the great names in in publishing for the better part of a century in New York, a very big facility, a very big organization, which was then bought by Houghton Mifflin, um, and you know, half the people who had worked at Harcourt were, you know, let go, and suddenly, editorial staff, support staff, where there might have been ten people to do a certain amount of work, now there's one or two. Um, my public, my my own editor, um, you know, who I've been with for about the last six years now. Normally, she had five or six people to assist her in the work she does. Now there's just one of her, and you can imagine the workload. Add to that the fact that the company has been making similar personnel cuts all across the line. People who would have handled proofreading digital copies and so forth. Uh, the big companies that have bought the smaller publishers no longer have money to spend on such things, or if they do, they prefer to be spending that money somewhere else. And so those support staff, those those positions are, are history now. And you're you're kind of lucky to get what you've got. <laughs> you know, it, uh-huh. it's sad, but it's it's just part of the economic truth of the moment. Getting back to the uh, ebook store questions, um, do you find having your own store uh, affects your decisions in any way in terms of whether to write for a publishing company or whether to write something to self-publish it yourself? Um, strangely, only in terms of length. Um, there are lengths that my publishers aren't interested in. Um, for example, the the short works like uh, not on my patch and and um, I almost, uh, what's his face the, the Christmas uh, Young Wizard story um, Hallelujah Their Branches um, I could never have gotten those through the door at Harcourt there would have been no interest they're just too short. Um, additionally, the the publisher is interested in the more classic novel structure that we we think of where you know that definition of a book where a novel in a series is a story about one of the most important things that happens in a character's life now these shorter works are not like that these shorter works are about the 
still interesting but less important things that happen in a character's life. These are about filling in the blanks on some things that people have been interested in and have said as much because I watch my mailbag pretty closely on, on this stuff. So that is the kind of line where things will divide. Um, if uh, for another place where it will divide, because I knew this was going to come up, will be the door to Starlight, because I'm fairly sure, and I'll, I'll check with my agent anyway, but I'm fairly sure that when I say to Don Moss, Don, does anyone want to look, you know, anyone in terms of conventional publishers, want to look at book four of this series? I'm almost certain the answer will be no. Um, no one knows about it, hardly. Very, you know, the the uh, interest pool in this book is small. And more to the point, the subject matter and the world itself, while they might have seemed groundbreaking when the book first came out and maybe, you know, for the second book, that whole, uh, you know, school of thought, of, you know, about LGBT publishing and so forth, um, is no longer new, cool, and interesting enough for, I think, for a big publisher to descend on me and say, yes, we'll have that. Thank you very much. So what's going to happen is when the book is out, um, as I say, Don will look first and Don will tell me if there's a market for it among conventional publishers. But I think the answer is going to be no. And once that mm-hmm. becomes the case, then I say, fine, mm-hmm. self-pub time, and we offer it through Amazon, through B&N, um, you know, and uh, at, at the own, at my own store, and and that's fine. It will do okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Um, yeah. So uh, apart from that, and of course the big meow, which is another special case. There, uh, you basically uh, any any time you want to do a novel length thing, you'll always try to publish it traditionally first. And if nobody wants it, uh, well, if nobody wants it, I'm sure there's always some other project a traditional publisher will want. So it's it's probably not really possible to find the time to write a novel-length work on spec. Probably not. Um, I mean, frankly, at this end of my career, I've been doing this for 30 years now and, and a bit, and at this end of time, if a publisher actually asks me to write a book on spec, I'm afraid I'm going to laugh gently at them and leave the room. Um, there's no point in that. And I've, I've, <laughs> in a general way, it has to be said, I've had it up to here with this kind of thing. Um, there is a um, historical novel project on my desk right now that's been there for the guts of 20 years right now. Um, and the reason it has not yet come out in, from a traditional publisher is because um, it's a historical novel, and none of them believe I can do that. None of the publishers that my agent presented this this book, you know, three chapters in an outline, the usual way, none of the publishers were willing to take the jump and believe that a woman who makes up entire worlds, complete worlds out of her head and tells interesting stories in them is going to be able to take facts about the real world that we already know that everybody knows <laughs> and tell an interesting story about. You see, you see where that leads. Uh-huh. I'm sitting. If it was the other way, if it was going the other way around, if I was a well-known historical novelist who suddenly wanted to take a jump into fantasy or science fiction, I could see where they might pull up a little bit and go, "Hmm, wait a minute, can she really?" Let's see the whole thing. Uh-huh. But this, but this way, I think not. Obviously, so, they've never read a wind from the south. 
Well, maybe not. And, you know, but th- this is the point. I, I have no interest in dealing with that side of the argument. Um, doing something for 30 years lends you a certain amount of credibility at least. Um, uh-huh. A couple times on the times list, ideally, um, should should have, you know, at least gotten people's <laughs> minds focused on a, a basic style and a good grasp of the basic sense of how a novel should be structured. I mean, it's like, guys, cut me some slack here. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, I really don't feel the need to be explaining mm-hmm. myself to, to people like that any longer. Yeah, yeah. you know, there, there are some authors like Joe Conrath and other people who are really big uh, self-publishing boosters and basically do mm-hmm. everything they write, self-publishing, and, and are really excited about it because they get to keep 70% of the money and so on and so sure. forth, but but uh, basically, given that you're uh, already a big enough name that, uh, with a very few exceptions, like you mentioned, traditional publishers are generally eager to work with you. I guess that's not as interesting. I'm willing to work to walk both sides of the road. Um, I like doing that. I like doing as many things as as I can. And anybody who looks at my past career in terms of, you know, screen work and and comics and computer games and and all this stuff. Um I like to stretch out. I like to do different things. And unfortunately in some people's minds doing a lot of different things means you're not really good at any of them. They will routinely trot out the old story about jack of all trades and master of none. These people never remember the next line of the quote, which is, and it's better to be a jack of all trades. Uh, it, it's it's it says something when you can move easily from you know one area to another of of creative work. Um, it keeps you young. It it's, it keeps the muscles limber. And I, I prefer to do things different ways. So if I can straddle that particular line and do both traditional publishing and self-publishing, um, you know, publish through uh, Amazon and so forth, and do my own ebook sales as well, um, then why the heck not? Indeed. Uh, one question I've been meaning to ask for a while is that uh, at the end of last year, uh, you said that the new VAT MOS changes and their European record-keeping requirements might mean having to close down your ebook store. However, I see you're still up and running, at least from a USA perspective. Uh, did you have to make any changes in how you deal with Europe and record-keeping and so forth? We we looked at that for like all the month of December when things were starting to heat up about this. Um, Peter and I sat back and we just had four or five long conversations about what it would entail um, to stay open and you know whether it would be worth the trouble. And there were a number of things operating. I was unwilling to throw away something that I'd done so much work on over the previous four years. Um, and so, in essence, what what occurred, you know, w- was the conversation where we look at each other and we say, "Okay, time to call the accountants and just tell them to get us VAT registered," um, because when you do that, then that management of the VAT from from digital sales simply gets rolled into your VAT registry, and, and that's fine. The difficulty is, of course, that you know we're fortunate to be in the position where we could do that. 
But unfortunately, a lot of people, specifically the the small business runners, people who are you know publishing documents or you know even things like uh, you know doll clothes patterns from their their kitchen tables, um, they can't all afford accountants. They can't all afford you know the time and the money that's involved in getting VAT registered. And if you look at Julia McKenna's um, Twitter feed, because she's been one of the foremost voices talking about how hard this is on on writers and and self-publishers, you see the most extraordinary moments of madness where, where, for example, you sit down with, uh, somebody sits down with uh, an um, EU-based government person, bureaucrat, let's say it plainly, and starts talking to them about the you know the problems involved in this and you find that this person thinks that when you're talking about web addresses they think and DNS they think that IP means intellectual property <laughs> yes, and you sit there going, no, 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 you have no idea. And, and it, it only gives you a hint of how deep the abyss of misunderstanding is. You know, you drop the pebble and you have to wait a long time for the splash. And dear heavens, it, 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 it will get sorted out. I mean, the EU... Uh-huh correctly wanted to close what it saw as a giant loophole that was being used to bad effect by Amazon and Luxembourg. Gee, I wasn't going to mention any names, but there you go. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and they, they felt correctly that the VAT structure was being abused. And uh-huh. they wanted to fix that, so they fixed it. But now we are deep into unexpected results territory, uh-huh. you know, and the things that somebody didn't think through. Um, and some uh-huh. of the results from the bureaucratic end have been blindingly and furious, uh, oh, just infuriating. Um, you know, somebody I heard from the Irish side saying, well, you should be VAT registered anyway. It's good business practice. Well, gee, that's real nice of you to say that to, you know, some, some mother on, on assistance already who is doing small publishing off her kitchen table, and you've just pulled the, the, the extra money that was making it possible for her to, you know, keep house correctly. You've just pulled that out from under her. Nice of you. Thanks so much. Um, there's a I, lot of consciousness raising that needs to be done uh, to get this legislation sorted out and amended for uh-huh. the smaller business user. I understand that there's supposed to be VAT reforms of some kind next year, but yeah. at the moment, VAT rates are all over the map. Some places are zero, some are 5% or 10% or 25%, and it's just crazy ridiculous. Yeah. Yes, it, it's quite bad. Um, they have been trying to do, they, they use the pretty word harmonization for a long, long time now. Believe me, Irish people are looking harder than most for harmonization for a reason quite dear to local hearts. We pay higher tax on booze than anyone else in the EU. Anyone else. <laughs> to the point where it is cheaper to buy a bottle of a good Irish whiskey in Austria or Germany than there is to buy it in Dublin. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> but there I, I are many other ways, so. obviously, more important than that, that, that that needs to be sorted out widely, but in particular with an eye to the small business users and, and makers who are supposed to be, as it were, the, the groundswell of what's going to repair this broken economy. They're not getting a lot of love right now. Uh-huh. Now, uh, uh, 
Getting back to the ebook store issue, uh, what do you see in the future of your ebook store? Right now, that's hard to tell. Um, right now, there are other things I'm, I'm looking. Oh, gunfire! Sorry, no. That, <laughs> I'm sorry. We do have neighbors who who shoot over their land. Um, right now, I'm I'm trying to get it to run itself better in ways that keep me running after it to fix things. In particular, I'm trying to make it easier for people to log in, to start accounts, um, to you know, revisit us when they want to. You know, I, I'm looking for a variant on Amazon's one-click button. That would be really handy for people who have already you know, have have an account with us and and have uh you know bought things in the past, I'd really like if if I could, you know, have an app attached to the store that would let them bypass the checkout process that we have right now. And right now finessing that um where PayPal is in the loop is an issue. I would also like to add a credit card processor sometime in the next year or so that is not PayPal. Um but that costs money and finding someone who will be able to support us both here in Ireland and at you know in in the future when we may move house to another country. I need I need to find something where that change can be seamless. I mean, it, it's funny, thinking about the VAT thing, there was actually a brief period where I floated the idea to Peter, and he thought about it briefly, and I went, nah, of moving the entire ebook business to Switzerland. The only problem is that Shopify is still located in the States, and it... it it was complex, but if we if we went back to something like Zencard or some other server-based sales option that we could physically locate in the outside of the EU, but in Europe, that would have been really cool. And Switzerland would have been an obvious choice for that. And as I say, that lasted about ten minutes. <laughs> it's not undoable, but it was unnecessarily complex. And I believe in invoking not just Occam's razor, but Dwayne's wrench when when possible. <laughs> if, a wrench in it right away before it makes life hard on you later. Uh, okay. So, yeah. My uh, editor emeritus, David Rothman, uh, suggests, uh, wants to know how you feel about uh, national digital libraries with uh, fair compensation of writers and other creators. I think they're brilliant. I, I, I'm happy to be part of them, not at the digital end yet, but they're going to be adding that on soon in the UK. We already have a fair lending approach in the UK and Ireland, where people who let, who borrow your physical books from libraries, um, that fact makes available to you a small payment. And so once every couple of years or so, when it builds up enough, people who borrow my books in the UK and Ireland, I, I get money because that happens. So I see no reason why that kind of, of approach can't be extended to digital libraries, and I'm happy to do that. In, generally speaking, also, when libraries come to me and say, we would, li and we would like your e-books, um, depending on the library and their size, my, my response varies from, here, I'll give you, you know, half off, or here, take these for free, and we'll talk about it later. You know, it's it's something I'm happy to do. Librarians have been my friends for a long, long time, and I think if if somebody could do a, a digital variation on the the fair lending approach, I think that would be brilliant. 
Yeah, it would it would certainly uh you know, it's funny it kind of puts me in mind of what Amazon is doing with Kindle Unlimited and some of the other subscription yeah. services are, which mm-hmm. is basically yeah. sort of a sort of a privatized version of that whereby instead of being funded through taxes, it's funded through mm. somebody's subscription fee. Yeah. Which is kind of a neat idea. That's well, it's how it... kind of back to the back to the future very much. That's mm-hmm. how Ben Franklin started the first lending library in the states. Uh-huh. That's how lending libraries in the UK were run in the uh, you know 1600s and 1700s. You paid a subscription, and then you could uh-huh. buy anything you like. And that's how they financed buying new books. Um, so you know, nothing, there's nothing new. Everything repeats. It was only a matter of time before they started doing that. But then again, with you know our streaming providers. Um, you know, like uh, out in the great world. Of course, they were going to try and do that. Inevitable. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, but you know, that's kind of the way it works over here in the U.S. Is that if uh, mm. if you want, it's a lot simpler to just start the business yourself than to wait for the government to do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> So we have finally cleared out all my questions about business-related matters, and I wanted to move mm-hmm. on to some of your backlist works now. Uh, sure. Back in 2011, you brought up the idea of writing The Door into Starlight, the fourth book mm-hmm. in your Middle yeah. Kingdom series, if enough people yeah. shared your blog post about it on social media. Uh, how did yeah. that work out? It worked out pretty well, actually. Um, when I did the numbers at the end of the day, it was clear that there were enough people there, if if they bought the book, to pay me what I would consider a, a decent advance, not a big advance, just just essentially um, uh, low four, high uh, low four, low uh, a high four, low five advance for the book, uh, or the equivalent of it in in terms of sales. Um, and that's that's fine because you know when you bear in mind that writing a book like that um takes you know 4 to 6 months of fairly straightforward com- you know concentration and for those 4 to 6 months if you argue you know a 5 day week let's be real um and divide that time that you spend uh into uh let's say for an argument's sake uh $7500 um that is a pretty piss poor living rage. <laughs> it's, it's quite bad. It is most writers, especially when you're reckoning work like this, work at well under anybody's minimum wage, almost anybody's. So that kind of bookkeeping, uh, no matter how much you love your art, is something you have to keep in your head. Anyway, when I did the math, I said, yes, this will pay. It still requires me to find the working time to write it. Um, I can't stop writing other things at the same time because I can't start selling this book, you know, until it's it's complete. And uh, you know, other things have to go on. We have other novel and and screen work that keeps our attention, and uh, you know, occasionally we have to uh, eat and sleep. So I think what we're looking at here is, um, or at least my my take on it when I looked at my most recent schedule, suggests that I'm going to start serious work on the scraps and tatters of the book that I have at the moment and look towards having a draft by about April of next year. Um, Oh, that's great. 
Well, it's good insofar as that goes, but then what you have to do is when, when you do a book like that, and especially one that so many people have been waiting for for such a long time, to the point now where I get messages that say, I want to read this book before I die, and other messages that say, I want to read this book before you die, and you're left <laughs> trying to judge which of those is, which of those is more painful to read. <laughs> Um, I mean, certainly, I would like to get this off my plate. A lot of people have been waiting for this for a long time. Everyone needs to be clear. I know exactly how it ends. I have known how it ends for 30 years. There's no problem. I, I even know how it begins. It's the middle that's the trouble. Middles are always the devil for me. And uh, you know, But more mm-hmm. to the point, it has to be right. It has to be the right book. It has to have the correct amount of attention paid to it. Um, if there is the slightest look to this thing that it was rushed or incorrectly thought through or incompletely thought through, I'm never going to hear the end of it. Everyone's going to say, <laughs> well, you know, you waited 30 years. Why couldn't you have taken a year more, <laughs> you know, and got it right? And then, of course, and then, of course, they'll you know, hear what they just said and they'll all run off screaming. Uh, but the point is it really needs to be done right. Uh-huh. I, I refuse yeah. to leave anyone unsatisfied with this book, including me, frankly. I've been waiting, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, Life I... keeps getting in the way. I remember, even though I came to the series relatively late, I still have copies of all three books on my, uh, on my bookshelf, and mm-hmm. they're different sizes, too. The, the yep. first two of them are big white trade paperbacks, and the third mm-hmm. one is a little blue regular paperback. Uh, But uh, I remember being impressed when I read them about how forthright they were in addressing alternative sexualities. And these were books like written in the 1980s. I don't think I recall any other books from that era that were so forward about it, though maybe I just didn't read the right ones. Did that ever cause any problems for you? Not that I could tell. Um, I think think the difficulty may have been... I mean, the, the first two sold quite well there was no problem with that but by the time the third one came out the the entire issue was being dealt with more frequently in in especially in science fiction and fantasy um and uh some of the some of the gloss as it were (laughs) some of the bloom had gone off the grape um and you know frankly look um i'm a mid-list writer i do not get huge write-ups you know my publishers don't pay for gigantic ads in the times um my books essentially either their own fandom keeps them reading them or that's the last we hear about them um that my own fandom is as persistent and and affectionate as it is 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 a tremendous thing to me uh believe me there are days when that's really all that keeps me going um but uh i you know there are as many other things going on in in the sale of books in the fantasy and science fiction spectrum um you know as as anywhere else and i i don't think that the content was ever the issue except in that people started getting more used to the content as time came went by and it was no longer a big deal yeah it's uh yeah but... It's always interested me the way that it sort of, in some ways, it kind of reads like a prototype of the Young Wizards novels, given that uh, a lot of, given that basically it has the same religious structure behind it, in mm. terms of the uh, 
powers? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's the same. I, I would say that the religious structure in the um, Middle Kingdom's books is, is considerably more personal. Um, while the powers that be are, are something you will brush up against occasionally in the Young Wizards books, this is more accidental and secondary to the position of the characters than anything else. In the Middle Kingdoms, everyone gets personal with the goddess at least once. Um, and her presence in life is seen as as an ordinary thing. In the Young Wizards' spectrum, the the powers are more otios. They're not in your face all the time. Uh, they're there, and uh, you know, but but they're they're not going to chase you down the street saying, "Wait a minute, you forgot your bread." <laughs> Unless you're uh, one of the protagonists, or especially one of the cats. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, this is, as I say, it's a positional issue. Uh, speaking of the Young Wizards novels, it always interested me when I was reading them, the the programmatic uh, nature of the magic, which is something you don't really see in a lot of other fantasies. I mean, the descriptions of crafting spells ended up reading a lot like the pseudocode that programmers use to uh, create their programs. And, yeah, uh, there's a lot of food. <laughs> yeah. How did uh, how did you get the idea for such a different structure of magic than anything else uh, in other fantasy series at that point? I have no idea. None. Uh some of these things just happen. Uh, and in my case, I suppose it's because though I've I've always enjoyed reading fantasy and and obviously it's, you know, it's the old story you should write what you enjoy and so I do. Um, all my education was scientific. Um, it's not widely known um, that before I was a psychiatric nurse, I was I was in school to become an astrophysicist, and it was hitting the calculus and bouncing <laughs> that, that pretty much convinced me that this was a bad career choice and I needed to be somewhere else. Um, so also other <laughs> astrophysicists, other astrophysicists said to me promptly, "You know, there's no job." opportunities for you once you graduate, not really. And I went, oh, okay. And um, at the end of my first year of, of being an, a physics student in university, I said, all right, this is not the way for me. And uh, since I was fortunate in having won a New York State Regents Science and Nursing Scholarship, I said, all right, well, the science side of this, while I've loved it to bits, is not going to work. Let me just go try the nursing bit. And that worked just fine. So I graduated three years with uh -huh. my RN and went to work in psychiatric nursing, and that was fine. Um, psychiatric nursing being one of the best places to do your homework for being a writer that you can possibly imagine. And it has nothing to do with the patients. It's, it's all about motivation, what makes people do things. Um, uh -huh. If you can get your characters to look correctly motivated, no one will have any trouble believing in them. And that's, yeah, that's... really the heart of it. Yeah, that's a big thing in your stories. I've seen that everybody tends to act believably, and I I like that. Um, one of one of your biggest projects in recent history has been revising every one of the existing Young Wizards novels to have an internally consistent timeline that took place considerably mm -hmm. later than they were originally written. Uh, how yep. did that get started? Um, it got started when I started getting um, letters from the younger readers saying, uh, why is high wizardry so stupid? 
the, the core of their discussion, and there was no arguing with it, they were absolutely right. They started saying, God, I've never heard of any of these computers. I have no idea what this is about. Why don't any of these kids have smartphones? Why? You know, why? Where's the Internet? And I looked at that and I went, you know, this, there's something to be said for that. And I looked at the tech in um, the high wizardry. And, you know, such as it is. And I looked at it and I said, God, this is, this has got to seem like, it, it, this is too archaic. Uh, the, the difficulty in particular with this is if the tech had been like 10 or 20 years older, you know, like non-existent, I could have let it be. If it had been a bit newer, it wouldn't be so bad. But it was right in that not-so-sweet spot of tech that is so dated. And I said, all right, this has got to be fixed. Um, and then, you know, I started looking at all the others and going, and this needs fixing, and that needs fixing, and that needs fixing over there. And I shortly realized that there was nothing for it. They were all going to have to be redone. And that probably this was as much a kindness to to me as as to the readership, because knowing that there were you know, sort of potholes in, in my series that no one could get over without, you know, getting a sort of mental flat. Um, I said, no, this has to be fixed. So the the full project, it took about two years. And, uh, you know, it, it took a while to get it moving. Um, I concentrated first on the ones that needed the most work. I wanted to fix, so you want to be a wizard, I wanted to fix... Um, uh, high wizardry, and then I looked at everybody else and said, "All right, fine. Here's here's what we need to do about these." Um, but the royalties from the publisher had made it quite clear that there was a significant drop off after "So You Wanna," specifically because of the tech issues or lack of them. And I uh, said, "What?" And I said, "Let's fix this." And so I have. Were there any especially really big challenges in changing the timeline, like things that that just sim- just were really hard to make work under newer technologies, given the given the how they, things were when you originally wrote them? I didn't find that. Um, I know I know that other writers talk about how difficult it now is to set up. I, I heard this in, in particular from a group of mystery writers who got together um, for a, a meeting recently where they were complaining or being reported as complaining that it was harder to set up good suspense anymore when everybody knew everything because they could just Google it from their phone. You know, and because the forensics people will know the truth, and there's sort of no point in in the long periods of time that your your character has to spend trying to figure out what happened. Um, I haven't been so affected by that, and in particular, I would count myself fairly poor as a craftswoman, as if I couldn't so alter a scene that had, for example, a payphone in it. Uh, so that there was a perfectly good reason to be using that payphone and not actually just calling someone on your cell. Um, there are, if you if you take your time and think about it carefully, there are usually ways to make it work. And I was quite willing just to take my time and make it work. But also, since this is my universe and what I say goes, um, if I felt the need to completely throw out a scene and substitute something else that worked better, I did that. Anybody doesn't like that, uh-huh. they can take it up with me. 
Are there, and that's exactly are, the way it will go when we go to film, because the film version of, of these books or, you know, will be different, will inevitably be different, because film is not novel. Uh-huh. And when I make changes, anyone doesn't like it, they can come talk to me. And that's just the way it goes. Are there any changes that you're especially proud of, things that where you think the new version works a whole lot better than the original? I... You know, I don't know. I, that, that would be, I'd really have to think about that one. Um, nothing comes up. I'm, you know, essentially, uh-huh. when you've just done nine books worth of that, I, I use just relatively here. When, when you've done nine books <laughs> worth of that, you know, over a couple uh-huh. of years, um, any brief momentary, you know, moments of, of sort of dancing uh-huh. around the living room going, I so nailed that, they kind of tend to get washed out. <laughs> So I guess in, it in, would... the, in the background noise of much more, not so much dancing and singing, but uh-huh. about how am I going to fix this, or is this structure doesn't quite work, or Didi, you shouldn't have wrote a sentence like that. Really, you shouldn't have. Or, I guess. So I guess your answer to whether there are any changes you regretted or things you regretted having to lose would probably be about the same. Uh, you'd have to think about, about the it. same. I mean, there were things. <clears throat> there, there were momentary images. I think. Um, one that will be a bit of a landmark for people who have read both the old books and, and you know, then come to the new ones is right up front. And so you want to be a wizard, the image of the, the Twin Towers that the kids see over the horizon as they're going into the city. And for a long time, that had me stuck. I didn't want to lose those. And finally I said, you know, I need to step back from this now because there is a new generation of readers behind me to whom that particular emotional resonance is, is absurd. They won't get it. Uh-huh. And it's time to let it, it's time to let it go. Yeah. Now, as an ebook geek, I do kind of feel the need to point out that giving Dyrene a Kindle in the first book, which at the time it is set would have cost $400, kind of mm. breaks suspension of disbelief a little on Nita's dad not being able to afford a $300 bike for her. Of course, That's quite true. The, the, of course, by inflation, the bike actually should have been $650 if it were equivalent to 300 in the original book. <laughs> that's, that's true. And, you know, I have a list of things on the second thoughts in, in the second thoughts file, and when I go through and redo all the books, I, I don't say maybe redo is the wrong word, but re, I'm about to recover everybody over the next um, three or four months. Um, there will be a lot of things that got caught by various people here and there, and I'm going to go in and make some very tiny changes to the files and regenerate them all. So, so uh there may be a new Millennium Point Two revision in another few years. Oh yeah, and for, it'll, it'll be labeled as such. Um, and everybody who has bought one, you know, of the original versions, will mm-hmm. be sent one automatically. This is one of the mm-hmm. nice things that um, Fetch App, which we use as the fulfillment backend for Shopify, takes care of. It's it's possible when you upload a new version of a book to simply tick a box saying um, send cop send a notification and a link to this to everyone who's purchased one. And you're you're handled. Then everybody gets a notification. Uh-huh. So if they want to download the new version, they do it. And if they don't, eh, you know, they they let it go. Will um, the, and that's all cool. Will the new revisions have the timeline jumped forward again, or will it just be no? The timeline is fine. We there's there's no need to do anything to that. So how are you going to avoid the same sort of thing happening for books in the future uh, if they're written every few years? 
Well, the new one, uh, book 10 that comes out in, in February, um, you know how bad it is when you actually have to stop and think of the title of your own book, <laughs> Games Wizards Play. Um, it actually fits um, in that timeline, and I've done quite a simple thing uh, by not mentioning anything but the time fix up front, up front of the book, and Julian dates are referred to in the body, and that's all. It, it, essentially, we do something in, in uh-huh. film. We just call it cheating it. I cheated it. <laughs> Yeah, and that's so, fine. The fans will know. The people who are hung up on the timeline issues will get it. No one uh-huh. else will care. Yeah, so uh, I noticed that the original Young Wizards books are with Hooten, Mifflin, Harcourt, but these yep. new ones aren't yet. Is there any reason for that? Um, there are ISBN differences and so forth. Um, what, what's happening is HMH is interested in the new Millennium Editions, but right now they can't justify the cost of calling, you know, calling these in and going back to press. Um, this is yet another reason why I can't wait for one of the uh, three companies we've got on the hook at the moment to actually say, fine, yes, we are going ahead with you know, this media form of the books, um, that will give the publisher the excuse they need. Uh-huh. And then I'll be able to hand them the enemies and say, here you go, fine, run with them, and everyone will be happy. In the meantime, they remain with me, and uh, there we are. So before releasing Games Wizards Play, you've done a trilogy of novellas uh, as a sort of a bridge. Uh, how did you decide to do these uh trilogies before your next novel and why now it was accidental (laughs) it was a complete accident um just every now and then you know a story idea comes along and and the the business with the the first one not on my patch um i just looked at halloween coming up and this particular set of story ideas had been sort of lurking in the back of my head for a while and i said fine why don't we do a charity thing for unicef this is my version of you know putting putting a little orange paper label on a milk carton and, and going from door to door collecting pennies. Um, and so you know I, I wrote this thing and uh, we donated a portion of the um, uh, proceeds to UNICEF and that was good. So then that sat for a while and I put it in the store and then somebody else said, well you know you've done this have you given any thought to doing a christmas story well you know and there have there's been this running joke about getting our one alien character who looks a bit like a christmas tree into a set of ornaments it's been going on for a long time and i said fine why don't we just pop this bubble all right let, let let's let's do this and so that was how lovely are their branches and i put that up and people seemed to like that a lot and then i looked at that and i said all right these actually fit the timeline i had i had gone to some trouble to, to fit them to the timeline, actually, at that point. I said, all right, well, all right, well, here's this other story. I've been wanting to talk about this how do you save an entire alien species under threat theme that comes up here and there. Um, I said, well, why don't I do that? So that that is Lifeboats, and after a bunch of um, hysterical uh, – technical crap which I'm not going to get into here um, it will finally be ready next week so if all goes well we'll we'll drop it on Tuesday and uh, uh, well everyone uh, will be happy especially uh, me that's, that's yeah. something that some of the people in the chat have been after me to ask about and I told them I'd get to it when it was time 
Uh, yeah, any- that was. I, I really want to apologize to everybody. I should not have assumed that software on the road was going to behave the same as software at home. All right, and then once we got home, I shouldn't have. You know, assumed that software that had been fine when I left it at home was still going to be fine. <laughs> and that's so, all I can. I don't want it, to. It, it's just a litany of horrors. I don't even want to begin. So I'm doing the final conversions over this weekend, and believe me, people will be notified so loudly when it's ready. I'm looking forward to it. I only just read the two, the first two, for the first time a couple of days ago, and I'm really excited. Any oh, any chance of the trilogy getting published in print as a fix-up novel or collection? I wouldn't say a fix-up, but yeah, I'm planning to go to Amazon with that. Um, I, you know, it's it's something about which there can be no possible doubt about the rights in particular, and I'm I'm curious as much as anything else to see how much. Um, attention it, it draws from the Amazon end of things. Um, so what will be happening is very shortly after it goes live on the ebook store, within a week or so anyway, um, it will go live in a Kindle version as well at Amazon as opposed to with us. Um, I think what I'll probably be doing to avoid confusion um, after it goes live at Amazon, I may pull our own Moby version just just to keep Amazon from getting crazy. Um, all other formats will continue to be supported in the store, uh-huh. and um, and you know we'll we'll take it from there. I'm 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 curious, as I said, mm-hmm. to see how well this will do. Now I know a lot of writers. A lot of writers really hate to reread their older stuff, so they tend uh-huh. to for, forget a lot of little things. But you've yeah. had a recent reminder of everything throughout the entire series. Uh, did the experience of revising the previous nine novels affect the writing of the novellas and the new novel in any way? Um, I would say there was probably some effect, but it wasn't anything that would have come up consciously. I mean, the difficulty with being a writer is that so much of what you do just kind of goes into the the stew pot of the brain and dissolves there and you know, you can you can see hints of of its effects, but if you go fishing for one particular grain of spice, you're probably not going to find it. Um I I would say having your memory refreshed is it's never a bad thing. Um there are more looks backward to that material in Games Wizards play than there have been in previous books. And that's okay. I mean, that's if there is an effect of rewriting those nine, that may be part of it. But also my editor did say to me, you know, you're referring to some of this stuff as if they'll all know what it is. And I said, well, yeah, they will. She said, just help us out a little bit here. <laughs> I said, some people will come to this book as their first taste of the series. So, you know, you want to be a little more explicatory about the the background material behind some of these references. I went, okay, fine. And and that we did. This is what your editors are for. Um, and I'd say that's probably the only effect. It's uh, having just finished with the first pass pages and, and sent them back to Houghton. Um, I'm, I'm pleased. I think people are going to like this book. Yo. Still there? Oops, I was muted again. Sorry. Um, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> do you have any idea 
any idea what what other things might be in the offing for the young wizards in, in the future? I know uh, I know that a lot of uh, readers will probably would probably love to uh, find out what happened immediately after the end of the big meow. <laughs> that last paragraph. <laughs> mm. But yes, well, there are some references. Um, to that new relationship in um, what's its face in, in Games Wizards play, um, but only only briefly. Um, as for the rest of it, you know that whole the, all the gating team stuff will continue to be woven through the main the main strand. Right now, my major attention is on book eleven. Uh, book eleven. <laughs> there have been people who have said that these books move in a kind of a binary. Uh, rhythm that you get a funny one and a not so funny one, a funny one and a not so funny one. Okay, well, if Games Wizards play is the funny one, then Book Eleven, which has no title as yet, is definitely the not so funny one. Boy, is this not so funny! And um, it is. There is more um, interface and crossover with the real world and with the problems that being a wizard in the real world can have than has appeared in most of the previous books. Um, in particular, this also answers some questions and resolves one very, very, very long-running plot line material that was actually hung on the wall in book one. I finally get to fire uh, I, this gun. Ooh, I am I am looking forward to that. Uh, it what? is it is going to be a difficult book to write. I'm allowing myself more time than usual for this <laughs> one. Um, it's just safest, um, but I expect to have a draft with my publisher by the end of the year. Okay. Um, ideally, if if timing goes correctly, I would like to have this come out in uh, you know, like a year after. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to get back on the one-year schedule again. Even Terry what? Pratchett, God rest him, knew that you needed a book a year uh-huh. to keep the public one of, happy. So one of the uh, one of the uh, people in the chat asks, "Do you mean hung on the wall literally?" There. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> no. I'm speaking of Chekhov's gun here, um, where the saying is that if you hang a, a gun on the wall in Act One, it must be fired by Act Three. The, the idea being that no play. <laughs> And certainly, no no work of, of fiction should contain unnecessary uh-huh. parts, and any more than than a machine you built should contain unnecessary parts. Um, so. Everything should have a purpose. Everything should be there. Um, and in in this particular case, this is a bit of business that has just been waiting, just waiting for a long time, and uh, now it gets handled. And um, excellent. Oh, yeah. There are people who are going to be surprised. There are people who are not going to be surprised at all. Um, There are people who will just, you know, stand there with bated breath and be really excited, and there are people who will want to chase me down the road with an axe. And that is exactly... That that tells me business is continuing as usual. Uh huh. So, uh, are there any other books that you're working on right now that you're able to talk about? Unfortunately not. Uh, Right now, also... Um, the the other thing that happens, seems to be cyclic for me is I'll have a period of a lot of book work and then I'll have a period of a lot of screen work. And right now it looks like the period with, with a lot of screen work is about to get started, which is why I'm so urgent about wanting to get a good draft of, of uh, 
Book 11, YW11 in the can. Uh, if what starts happening early in the year begins to happen as, as, as it seems it's going to happen, I'm going to be very, very busy with a screenplay for the guts of 2016. And it's going to be a big deal. You, uh, I gather most of your screen work is for uh, European stuff. Is there any chance of anything that would be shown on American TV? Yes. Well, that'd be cool. Have you ever, uh, you know, I really kind of wish you'd get to write a Doctor Who episode sometime. That would be awesome. I think that would be charming, but I really think I'd rather leave that to people who are better <laughs> equipped. That's going to sound very strange. Um, there are some franchises that my preference is to sit and put my feet up and let other people do it um, and, and just watch what they do. Mm-hmm. And right now, I think Doctor Who is in good hands. I know that there are people who will disagree violently with me, and that's okay. I have room for that. <laughs> I know they wanted to have J.K. Rowling do an episode, and I just I just keep thinking if they could have J.K. Rowling do it, they they ought to have somebody who's done considerably more work in both in terms of both screen and and tie-in fiction. <laughs> Well, Joe jo is getting her work out at the screen end right now. Um, she will have very good people helping her. Uh, but the first time you do, you know, a movie, it's it's your nerves are in shreds the whole time, and and this will be her first time doing <laughs> script work. Um, they it, they it, had Neil Neil Gaiman got to write a couple of the episodes too, which was cool. Yes, he did. Yeah. See, there's this too, and I think everybody, you know, it, it's as charming as as could be imagined to have people thinking of me in this regard. But quite frankly, my profile as a screenwriter is not sufficiently high to warrant me being asked to write on Doctor Who. There are people who won't like that. That is unfortunately just part of business, the way it goes. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's combined with my desire to leave that work to other people, I think, you know, it's all fine. We're good. Yeah, so uh, every uh, one of our chat people says every so often we hear rumors of a Young Wizards movie, and uh, you've mentioned a couple of things during this podcast. Any, yeah. any yeah. Anything likely on the horizon? Likeliness is impossible to judge. Um, there, is, there is interest. There is always interest. The books have been optioned a number of times. Um, and they have failed previously because uh, the people involved either weren't sufficiently familiar with the material um, or for various other reasons that are simply peculiar. Excuse me, Peter's just sticking his head at me. What, sweetie? No, we're good. I'll, I'll talk to you in a while. Um, <laughs> we're going to yeah, we're, okay. so, we're, anyway, uh, yeah, we're the So anyway, the heart of it is that... Um, I'm I'm waiting for the correct conditions, and the correct conditions involve me as the screenwriter. Um, the people who we would be pitching to would understand that from the word go. I now have a couple of features and, and you know uh, one and a half miniseries under my belt um, that have you know been nominated for awards and won them. Um, you know they have no excuse to exclude yeah. me as the screenwriter of, of note on the project. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and I will be exercising creative control over this if they're not willing to you know, understand that from the opening of negotiations, then those are conversations we can uh-huh. have. 
Yeah, I mean, what with uh, what with all the various mega franchises we've had over the last decade or so, the Lord of the Rings stuff, the Harry Potter mm-hmm. stuff, the Marvel stuff, et cetera, et cetera, you would think that any studio would would jump at something that has nine novels and four novellas already uh, out there. Yeah, and the argument against that would be not one of them has been on the New York Times list and no one's ever heard of them. See how that goes. So uh-huh. you gotta be you gotta be cruel about this, frankly, because otherwise uh-huh. people's you know hopes get unnaturally raised. These are mid-list books. Their only virtue is that they've been here for a long time, and I'm still writing them. And <laughs> the the issue at this point becomes sooner or later someone's going to say, well, what about these? These have been here for 30 years, and no one's done anything with them. And then they'll they'll seek out my film agents, and my film agents will tell them the story, and they will either say yes or no. If they say yes, then we're good. If they say no, I'm going to smile and say, you know what? I've waited 30 years. I can wait a few years more. <laughs> What's the rush? Mm-hmm. You know, any time yeah. they try to rush you into something, it's bad news. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm willing to sit and wait. I would rather they be done right. If they don't get done right, um, I'm just going to be ever so cranky. Uh-huh. Who wouldn't like me when I'm cranky? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've just got a couple more questions here. Sure. Uh, you've done a lot of tie-in uh, fiction in the past. Do you have yeah. any tie-in fiction planned for the future? I would like to do one more Star Trek novel. I would love to do one more Star Trek novel. I have the plot. It's ready. I have the title. The title is short of uh, How Much for Just the Planet. It's the best Star Trek novel title I know, and the working title would be Grand Theft Starship. I would I would certainly look forward to that. Uh, well, I mean, look at it. Kirk is all the time accidentally stealing starships. Why don't we actually send him to steal one? Yeah, a heist novel. That would be fun. That is the intention, and this one would be, you know, as as befits a swan song, because it would be the last one. Um, it, it will be rather different from others. This would be very dark. The humor gets very black in this one. Uh, I um, hope. I certainly hope you get your chance to write it, then. <laughs> I would. I would love to. the The issue is, I, I haven't had time really to approach the editors. There's been too much on my plate already. And I honestly don't know what my agent would say. I mean, this is uh-huh. the same man who, when I came to him with The Wounded Sky, uh, you know, pushing 30 years ago, uh, I said, Don, I'm gonna, guess what? I've got to write a Star Trek novel. There's this long pause, and he says, you have to. <laughs> now, <laughs> and my... Uh, yes, was, yes, yes, I do. Yeah. Now, my, uh, my, one of my favorite tie-ins of yours was uh, the XCOM novel. And... Uh, you know, it seems to me that now that there's a new, highly addictive XCOM strategy franchise out, you're, the people who own the rights really ought to see about republishing that, because the new game is enough like the original that there that really it, it wouldn't even need to be changed. It would be kind of cool. I'll, I'll leave that with them. I had a lot of fun writing that book. I did so much gameplay working up to it, and it made me laugh so hard when people go, "Ah, that's never played the game at all." Like, Have you had Please, a chance to play them? play the new one? Well, you know, uh, no, I haven't. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't and it, it you know, the to-do list is is that high. But it it just it just made me laugh when when I used to get those mails. I had a similar thing happen with Privateer 2, The Darkening, which was so much fun to write. And I was actually in London. Uh 
in a in a restaurant called Sloan Square uh, called Oriole in Sloan Square. It's gone now. And um I'm standing there uh I think I must have been paying my bill or something. And I'm wearing the the crew jacket for for the darkening, which is just a beautiful thing, black on black embroidery, very very cool. And the guy, you know, comes up behind me and says, oh, "I bet I bet you never even played that." <laughs> You know, it's the standard, you know, guy thing of of the particular kind of gamer. And I sort of turned around and looked at him because I had just been visiting my my screen agent in London. I said, let me show you a thing. And I pulled out of my bag the contract for the game, which I had just, just, you know, as we went out the door, she said, here, look, you don't have copies of this taken home. I said, fine, you know, shoved it in the bag, forgot about it. And... This guy, this this baby boy gamer in, in a cheap suit and a shiny tie, right? You know, or the other way around. Um, he says, I bet you never even played it. I said, look here. And I showed him the contract <laughs> for the game. I said, actually, I wrote this game. Okay. And, and you can see here exactly how much they paid for it. Look at all those lovely zeros. Aren't they nice? And this guy, I had never before had a referent for the term slunk away in total dejection. I have one now. (laughs) And it was, you know, it's funny because until um, another lady, uh, a gamer, you know, had a guy approach her and she tweeted about it. He he was wearing the t-shirt for the game. He says, I bet, he said to her, I bet you never even played it through. And she turned around and so she told him how it ended. And there was much applause (laughs) over that, and quite rightly, too. And, you know, I just said, gee, you know, i completely forgotten this that, that evening in Oriole, how funny that was. And, you know, how absolutely magical, plainly God was smiling on me that day, because I just happened to have that paperwork in my hands. But also, how dumb was this guy? I was wearing the goddamn crew jacket. <laughs> you know? So we must assume that he had done something unusually bad and had been sent to me for punishment. <laughs> which I was so happy I've, to administer, be it ever so accidentally. I think I think that uh, that I I don't think anything either of us can say at this point can stop <laughs> that. So I think that's a just fairly good under point casual to, sexism and move on. <laughs> that's a fairly good point to wind down the interview anyway. And uh, let yeah. me just count up the number of active participants we've had in the chat room and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I will randomly roll to see who gets the prize. Hopefully it's somebody who is still here and or has left their contact information. Okay, Get please do it. You know, you know where to find me, and you know, I will mm-hmm. email them uh, their goodies this mm-hmm. evening just yeah. as soon as you pass me a, an email yeah. address. Well, give me just a second to count, and I have a die roller here, so give me just a second and I'll tell you. I'll tell everybody sure. who's listening who it is. Let's see, one, two... Three, four, five, six, I'll skip David, seven, eight, nine, I think. Let me see. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, actually it looks like that one person hasn't said anything, so I'll just go with eight. So okay. I will roll one eight-sided die. One die eight, and it looks like 
Let's see here. It looks like the winner is. Uh, it looks like the winner is uh, guest thirteen. Uh, I don't have a name from him, and he said he had to leave. But okay. He's, but uh, guest thirteen, uh, when you listen to this, you're the guy who said oxidation kink in the chat. Uh, <laughs> okay. So guest thirteen, uh, email me at robotech r o b o t e c h at erie dot org at e y r i e dot o r g, and uh, I will pass your information on to Diane and get you Perfect. your copy of the uh, the book. Also, so, make uh, sure that you get the um, the version they need um, according to what e-reader they're using. Right. Uh, we have a widespread, but essentially, you know, EPUB, uh, generic EPUB, if you're any, in any doubt, and you have something like a Samsung or an iPad, we have iPad versions specifically. Um, you know, just, just make sure you get the version for me. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I uh, I really appreciate you taking the opportunity to uh, to – appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you today and uh, Chris, it was a really a really fascinating interview and I hope you and Peter really enjoy your beers. <laughs> well, you know, the local is also carrying some really nice ciders and uh, in fact one of them is made by one of our neighbors um and it's it's gone big. It's even being featured in bars and, and pubs in the US now. Um, a really, really uh, Craigie's cider. Everybody, look it up. So um, we're we're probably going to hoist a couple of those when we get down there. Okay. Well, uh, enjoy it. And uh, and I, I again, I really appreciate the chance to talk to you. And uh, good luck with your books and everything. And uh, thanks so much. And thanks for uh, being part of the interview. You have a great day. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Bye, everybody. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. And that's this week's Tellerread podcast. Please tune in next week when we have somebody else. Uh, also, feel free to listen to any of our previous shows. They won't be quite as interesting as this one, but I had fun.